Ephesians 1, uh, starting at uh, verse 1, ending at verse 7. You got your Bibles, follow along. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was a descendant from David according to the flesh. And he was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm excited to dive into the book of Romans. This will be our new series. Anybody excited about diving into this book? Well, y'all pray for me because it's a monster, but it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a good book. It's a good, good, good book. Uh, let's pray before I get started. Father in heaven, God of all grace and mercy, peace. Lord, as we just sang, Lord, it is well with our souls. Father, what a wonderful thing to sing. What a wonderful truth to embrace. Lord, as we dive into Romans, may the truth of it is well with our souls wash over us. And may the spirit of the living God dwell in this place. That we may never be the same. That we may look more and more like our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We praise you. We lift your name for all that you are, all that you have done. A thousand tongues couldn't sing all of your praises. And I pray that you would be with me. Have my flesh behind the cross. May Christ be exalted in this moment. In Christ's name I pray and everybody say. As I said, I, uh, for one, am excited and have anticipated for some time to dive into uh, the book of Romans. And the introduction of of a book is usually the hardest part um, as there's a lot of background and things that you want to lay forward before you can really dive um, into the text. So we'll do a little bit of that this morning, diving into the background of the book of Romans, how did it come about, so forth and so forth. But there was one pastor upon starting an exegetical preaching journey through the book of Romans with his congregation, and he said the book of Romans reminded him of that old folktale story, Cinderella. And maybe you're wondering how. Because it is a story of reversal. He said, perhaps you may recall the story this morning. The stepdaughter is living under the custody of her stepmother that married her father for his inheritance. Today we call that a gold digger. Just in case you're trying to figure out what it is. So she marries... Uh, Cinderella father for his inheritance. Cinderella must live in a subjective role with her wicked and jealous stepsisters. She is made to work cleaning out the chimney where the mistreated girl is covered with cinders, hence Cinderella. The ashes mar her beauty. The king decides to make an arrangement for his son to marry. He, inv- he invites the maidens through the kingdom to come to the ball to discover a young girl that would capture the heart of his son. In this story, Cinderella has a fairy godmother. Thank God for fairy godmothers. 
who gives her an opportunity to go to the ball where she meets the prince and the king's son. But you know the story. At the strike of midnight, she has to run and leaves her slipper behind. And so you know the moral of the story. If the shoe fits, you must. I'm just messing around. I'm just messing around. No, the moral of the story is that the prince will have no other love but that of Cinderella. So what does he do? He searches for her throughout the kingdom. Only after this great search is done does he come to her house and discover she lives with her stepmother's family. It is there that the prince matches the slipper left at the ball and sees beneath the ashes that covers her beauty. He sees that the love that captured his heart. You see, the book of Romans is actually a Cinderella story in this respect. It is a story of God's rescue of people enslaved by sin, a people enslaved by the devil, a people who is found by his son, and who are destined to be his son's bride. Romans tells us how God people are clean from the cinder and ashes of sin that covers them and liberated from the oppression of the devil after being caged up in, this, in, in his evil castle and taken to a real castle where they are cared and loved for Friends, to put it plainly, Romans is about the good news of God. As we come to this book, I want you to understand, we are not just coming to theological truths. We are not just coming to a tightly woven gospel tapestry. And yes, we are coming to theological truths. But more importantly, friends, in this book, we are coming to a person. We are coming to a savior. We are coming to a God who died on our behalf that we may be redeemed and the glory of God may be captured by us. This book wants to reveal God's love for us and his own glory. And I don't want you to pass that up. This book is not just about God's love for you. This book is also about God's love for his own glory. If you don't get that, church, you can't understand none of the Bible. Everything that God does, every time he acts, every time he moves, he's moving for his glory, and we are just caught up. We get the byproduct of what God is really pursuing. He's really pursuing his glory. And so my prayer is that we would encounter Jesus Christ, that we would encounter a real person, that we will not just encounter theological truths to store in our head, but that we would encounter the love of Jesus Christ. Uh, an example here of uh, an old theologian, his name was Augustine, an African monk, one of the greatest theologians that ever lived, encountered Jesus right while reading this book. Now, understand, Augustine struggled with sexual sin. He was addicted. He was a slave to sin. And oftentimes he would cry over his sexual slavery. He would cry over his fallen nature. He says this. He says, I flung myself down under a fig tree and gave way to the tears that now streamed down my face in misery. I kept crying. Anybody ever cried over sin? 
You ever wept over something that had you so tight? Something that gripped, I mean, that real sin. I'm talking about that sin you don't want nobody else to know about. It is just you and God in your room, and you are laying prostrate on the floor, and you are weeping, saying, God, can you take this away from me? I don't like the way this makes me feel. I don't like the person that I'm becoming. God, I am pleading with you. Can you take this sin away from me? You understand what Augustine is going through. Augustine is suffering with a beast, with a monster, with something that is destroying his life and in honesty in a moment under the fig tree he goes under the tree and he's weeping and he's crying and he says this I believe you can relate to this how long will I go on saying tomorrow 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 why not now Augustine is sick and tired of being sick and tired of his sin he says no longer will I say tomorrow what about today how many people know that Jesus can set you free today he don't have to wait until tomorrow he can set you free today he goes on to say why not make an end of my ugly sin at this moment and all at once and I love this part All at once, I heard the sing-song voice of a child in a nearby house. If it was a boy or girl, I could not say. But again and again, it repeated a phrase. Take it and read. Take it and read. Immediately, I ceased weeping. And I began most earnestly to think whether it was usual for children in some kind of game to sing such a song. But I cannot remember ever having heard the like. So stopping my tears, I got to my feet, for I could not but think that this was a divine command to open the Bible and read the first passage in which my eyes should fall. Augustine Augustine ran. I snatched it up. I opened up the Bible and in silence read the paragraph on which my eyes first fell. And this is what he read. Let us walk properly as in the daytime. Not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality or sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. Verse 14, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Church, here he is sitting under a fig tree. God comes to a child. And says, pick up and read. He runs to scripture. He reads this verse and he says, I wanted to read no further, nor did I need to. For instantly, as the sentence ended, there was infused in my heart something like the light of full certainty and all the gloom of doubt vanished away. At age 32, Augustine was free from sexual sin and never went back after reading two sentences from Romans. I don't know about you, but we serve a God that is way greater than sin. In a moment, in an instant, God broke what he was struggling with all his life. And I know some of you may not believe that God is able to break some of the strongholds in your life and some of the addictions in your life, but God shows up to Augustine in such a powerful way that he breaks his sin in a moment that he frees him. And echoing in my ears is the words from John, who the son set free, is free in what? Free indeed. So why should you listen to this sermon? Why should you be excited about the book of Romans? Why should you? Why should you give 40 minutes of your time to listen? It may be 50. 
That's what I'm usually tracking. That's my track record. But the reason you should look and listen to this sermon in this series is because Romans is for the guilty. It's for the broken. It's for the jacked up. It's for the sinner. It's for the religious, self-righteous person. It's for the black person. It's for the white person. It's for the yellow person. It's for the thief. It's for the social media junkie. It's for the deadbeat. It is for those who struggle with pornography. It is for those who struggle with low self-esteem, the outcast, the marginalized. Whatever it is that you're going through, this book is for you because Jesus is for everybody. There's not one person that Jesus has not died for. Church, when we come to the Bible, we are coming to a person. You're not just snuggling up with a book, right? Nobody wants to snuggle up with a book, right? We are coming to a book that is conveying a person to us. And oh, my brothers and my sisters, to encounter Jesus is to never, ever be the same again. When we encounter the love of God, our lives are never the same ever again. Church, as we look to our series, what is our plan through tackling this book? Some of us have been in churches where they walk through an entire book, but some of us have not. Our approach is going to be like a family trip somewhere. We're going to drive the roads. We're going to drive every word, every verse. However, some of the trip we will cruise through faster. And some of the trip, we will slow down. We will take our time. We will dwell on some verses. At times, we will stop at museums, uh, famous sites, get out, take selfies, grab a lunch. We're going to be in this book for two to three years. Somebody say amen. 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 We're just going to wring all of it out. Now, if you think two to three years is a long time, one pastor spent 13 years in this book, and another pastor spent nine years in this book. We're going to break this book up in five sections. We're going to deal with Romans chapter 1, starting at verse 1 through 320. We're going to call that section the gospel of our misery. And then we're going to move on to chapter 3, starting at verse 21. And we're going to go through uh, chapter 4, ending at verse 25. And we're going to call that section the gospel is God's solution. And then the third part is going to be Romans 5. We're going to start at verse 1, ending at verse uh, 39 in chapter 8, the gospel and our liberation. Um, And then we're going to move on to uh, Romans 9, 1 uh, through 1130. Romans 9 will mess you up, I'm telling you. Uh, The gospel for all people. And then we're going to end with uh, chapter 12, starting at verse 1 concluding at verse 25 in chapter 16, the gospel um, transform life. Can we give it up for the book of Romans, y'all? Now, we all come from different backgrounds. So I know we may be used to a certain preaching style or technique. I realize that reality in the room. There are two most popular ways of preaching scripture. And the two are what we call expository and topical preaching, expository and topical preaching. Now, our approach is going to be expository, and let me explain what that is, also known as exposition. Exposition exposes or lays open the Bible to an audience. 
and the audience to the Bible. Exposition is not just a verse-by-verse commentary on a passage. In exposition, the aim is to crystallize the truth set forth and to focus on the main message or point of the passage or text. And when true exposition happens, when the Bible is truly preached, when the text is truly open, people should always walk away saying, so that's what the scripture is about. Or that what, or, or this is what God was saying there. About a preacher of Marvin Knight, that's where I got that definition from. He goes on to say, expository preaching defers from topical preaching in this, in that it focuses on explaining not only the whole of Scripture. So expositional preaching considers all of the context of Scripture. When I am studying God's Word, when I'm looking to lay forth the meaning of Scripture, I'm thinking of all of Scripture. All right, And so a lot of times where you get a lot of cults and things from is that people like to quote verses and build an ideology around it or build an argument around it. It is imperative that when someone is quoting a scripture to you, you go back and find out if it's in context or not. Amen? For an example, if I go into a barbershop and the guy says, hey, I'm going to line you up, we understand the context that he's going to line me up. But if I'm not in a barbershop and all I hear is that I'm going to line him up, it could, be, it could be a threat in the hood. You see what I'm saying? So now context makes the difference on how I interpret what was said. And so it is imperative as a church that we go back and say, hold on, brother. You forgot this and you forgot that. Like last week when I said Mark 14, I had my theologians in the group say, uh-uh, pastor, this is, this is Mark 9. This is not here. We're not listening to you until we find this scripture. And you should never, ever, ever think that just because a man is behind a pulpit that he's preaching the truth to you. You better go in your Bibles and you better go check his theology and make sure that he's giving you the truth. And if he gets offended, oh well, everybody is subject to the Bible. The Bible is the ultimate authority. If I'm out of line with Scripture, well, I need to humble myself, repent in turn. Nobody is over the book. Amen? We're all under the book. And so we're going to be doing expositional preaching. Let's talk about the background uh, to the letter of Romans. Now, I usually got my face mic on. I can usually real slick grab my water. That's a little complicated today. Derek, it's a water drop in this microphone. I ain't gonna get electrocuted, man. Okay, cool. Okay. All right. All right. So for, somebody said just a little bit. I'm gonna go see Jesus for real, for real. <laughs> All right. So as we come to the book of Romans, let us understand this first and foremost that Romans is actually a letter. Romans is a letter, although we refer to it as a book. The Bible is a collection of many different types of literature, gospel, song, narrative, poems. I do want to park my car here for a minute in regards to interpretation once again. When, I'm interpret- when, I am, when I am interpreting a text, I need to know the genre because the genre is going to dictate how I come up with my interpretation. When I'm reading the Psalms, there's, it's poetic. So when it says God stretched out his right arm, it doesn't necessarily mean that he stretched out his right arm literally. Let me back up because y'all looking at me crazy. There was a song that says she's a brick house. He didn't really mean that she was a brick house. He, he was just using a metaphor. Now y'all want to act holy like y'all don't know that song. 
Don't do me like that. Don't do me like that. Y'all know that song. Now, most of the New Testament books are actually letters written by the apostles. And I don't have time to get into how they came up with the canon of Scripture and things like that. But most of the books were selected to be in the Bible because they had apostleship uh, authority to them. That was one of the ways. Now, Paul wrote, now watch this. Paul wrote 13 of the books in the New Testament, and it's only 27 of them. He wrote 13 of them. Now, we sometimes call these epistles, which is just a famous way of saying letter. So if you want to be fancy and try to show off, I try not to use too many words because I'm still working on the fundamentals. And so, but I can't say epistles, though. All right, so Paul wrote most of the New Testament, but who was Paul? Who was the author? Uh, he was the author of the letter of Romans. Paul was a highly educated Old Testament scholar. He was a religious zealot. He had been a Pharisee, which was the highest order in the Jewish religion. He was like a bishop or something. Y'all know what a bishop was. I mean, he's, he's up there. He was tasked, watch this, with eliminating the new Christianity. He was violently opposed to the claims of Jesus as Messiah. So before Paul writes the New Testament letters, he was at first trying to persecute and kill off Christians and lock them up. You mean to tell me God ain't got no grace when he can use a dude that was murdering his church to write most of the New Testament letters? This is astonishing. This is why I say when we come to the book of Romans, it's for the jacked up and the messed up. The dude who wrote the book of Romans started out jacked up and messed up. In fact, in Timothy, he says, I am the worst of sinners. But one day, he ran into the person of Jesus Christ on the Damascus Road, where he was commissioned to be an apostle and a missionary to the Gentiles. So Paul was God's instrument to push the gospel out of Jerusalem and into the ends of the world. A Jewish Old Testament scholar who evangelized Gentiles to the Christian faith. But that was Paul. Interesting enough, Paul knew the scriptures at first, but he didn't know Jesus. Church, it is possible to know scripture and not know Christ. John puts it this way, just in case you think that I'm lying. In John 5, 39, he says, you search the scripture because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Jesus is saying that I am more than words in your head. I am more than a religious system. I am more than your church attendance. I am a person. I will not only be understood, but I will be known in your heart. And if you don't know me, you can't enter into heaven because you got to know him. And there's a lot of people that are able to rattle off scripture and tell you what the Old Testament says and what the New Testament says. But there was some old saints who would be in the kitchen washing dishes dishes, talking, look like they were talking to themselves, but they were talking to Jesus. You don't understand that Christianity is not a religion. Jesus didn't come to give you a new uniform. Jesus didn't come to give you a new system, but Jesus came because he wants a relationship with you, such a relationship that you can be fixing on the car and talking to Jesus. You can be cooking dinner and talking to Jesus. You ain't got a relationship with him until you start talking to him. Now, some folks may think you crazy, but you just keep on talking because he's real. In the case of Romans, Paul authorship, 
not only places it in the canon of Scripture, it also explains much of the purpose of why Paul is writing this letter. So not only does his apostleship give this letter a place in Scripture, uh, but it also explains to us the purpose of the letter. Paul writes this letter to the Roman Christians from, from the also great city of Corinth in Asia Minor. So Paul, when he writes the letter of Romans, he's actually writing from Corinth, which is now the church of Corinth is the church that got the two letters written to them, which was first and second. Anybody know? Corinthians. He was there for three months, and we see this uh, in his letter where he said he's trying to collect money for the church in Jerusalem. He was there for three months as to finish collecting an offering for the poor Christians who were suffering in Jerusalem. And I actually love that because it goes to show that Christians should be looking out for one another. But moving on, he was heading to Jerusalem to deliver the offering, but his eye is on what is next for him. After Jerusalem, he wanted to go where? He wanted to go to Rome. What is interesting is nobody knows how the church of Rome actually came about. Paul had never been there, and he was a pioneer Gentile apostle. But we do know this. We do know that on the day of Pentecost, that's the beginning of the book of Acts, visitors from Rome were there. And so it is likely during that time that those who were from Rome went back to Rome and planted a church in Rome. But these people have never seen the apostle Paul. They never knew him. And what do we know? is that Paul wanted to go to Rome. His hope was that it would be a base of operation for his eventual goal, which he wanted to go to Spain. So he wants to stop in Rome and receive help from them and then go off to Spain. That is his goal. Whether he got there or not, we do not know. But we do see this in Romans chapter 15, verse 24. He says, and I hope to see you in passing as to go to Spain and and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. Now, why is this important? Because it addresses why Paul would write such a detailed doctrinal accounting of his understanding of the gospel. Paul don't know them. They they don't know him. And yet he needs to receive help from them. And so Paul now writes so that they understand his doctrinal position. Paul was introducing himself to the Roman church. And at that time, Paul, you got to understand, Paul was controversial. There was a lot of arguments about whether he was authentic, whether he was real, all right? And so as Paul is going about preaching the gospel, he kind of got some enemies against him. And that's, that's typical, right? When we're preaching the truth of God's word, when we are doing the mission of God, we encounter opposition. This is not new. If we're not countering opposition, maybe we're not preaching the real gospel. Because when you start preaching the truth for real, for real, then you're going to get some people who don't like you. You're going to get some people who are going to oppose you. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that we should be persecuted for being jerks, but we should be persecuted for proclaiming the gospel. If you are proclaiming Jesus Christ, I'm okay with you persecuting persecuting me for Jesus' sake. But if you persecute me because I'm just a jerk, that's a whole different story. Don't put that on Jesus. But if you're persecuting me because I'm proclaiming the truth of the gospel, well, bring it on because blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are you when man persecute you and say all kinds of evil about you. Jesus says that you're blessed. Paul is introducing himself. 
Paul wanted to assure them of his credentials as an apostle in the orthodox nature of his teaching. What better way in that day than to write a definitive explanation of the gospel of all time? This would be like seeking a senior pastor position. Imagine Christians in Rome reading Paul's letter asking, should we allow him to be our pastor? Should we allow him to preach in this church? After reading the letter of Romans, I, I think so. So let's move on to Paul's Paul greetings here. We're going to get into the letter now. Starting at verse 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be what? An apostle. Set apart for the gospel of God. Verse 2, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Let's stop right there. Let's deal with verses 1 and 2. If Paul had a business card back in the day, and he was to order a business card from Vista Print. They would actually print verse 1 and 2 on his business card. Paul would hand that business card to them, and it would say, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Now, I want you to recognize something here. I want to draw your attention to something. You see Paul's name at the beginning of the letter. This is quite different from how we write letters these, uh, today. We address the person first. We say, dear Joe, and so forth and so forth. But Paul, in Paul's culture, you begin with your name, then the person you are writing to, and then your greetings. Now, Paul expands that basic template and fills it with Christian truth. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. Now, the language Paul wrote here, the original language was Greek. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. Now, through this series, we will occasionally refer to the Greek. For an example, the original Greek, these first seven verses are actually one sentence. They just run on. The word servant here is dolos. In the Greek, which could be translated slave. Don't let that miss you. Paul identifies himself as a slave. Let me talk to you for a minute. Imagine that Paul, an apostle, he seen the risen Lord. He was called by Jesus, and he identifies himself as a slave. Now, apostles had distinct qualities that made them an apostle. I know there's a lot of people running around saying they're apostle, and they got like 20 other names, titles behind it. They were, per now listen, the apostles were personally called in commission by Jesus. They were eyewitnesses of the historical Jesus at least, and especially of his resurrection. They were sent out by him to preach with authority. Paul is somebody. Paul is not a nobody. Paul knew Jesus personally. Paul was called by Jesus personally, but he identifies himself as a slave. Nevertheless, Paul was, was a purchased slave. He was purchased by the blood of Jesus, that Jesus bought Paul and brought him to himself. This is totally contrary to some of the leaders of our day. You better be careful of preachers and pastors and apostles and bishops that make more of their title than they do Jesus. They want to talk more about who they are than who he is. We got to be careful that we don't make much of ourselves. Our ministry is not about me. My ministry is not about what I've done, but the ministry is about what Jesus Christ has accomplished on the cross. 
Salvation should humble us. Salvation does not puff me up. I'm not on a crusade to make much of Dexter. That should not be my mentality. Paul's life was completely devoted to Jesus so much so he says, I'm a slave to Jesus. Wherever Jesus go, I go. Whatever Jesus says, I said, whatever his agenda is, that is my agenda. You want to find Paul, find Jesus. Nothing mattered more than Christ to him. I love in the book of Philippians when he says to live is Christ, to die is gain. You know you're a bad boy when you say if I die and I lose everything, I really gain everything. He's showing where his love is, where his devotion is. My question to you this morning, that's Paul. But what about you? Where is your devotion? Where is your commitment? What drives your life when your feet hit the floor? Is the gospel driving your decisions? Or is it this world in your own fame? Oh, what it would be, church, to lose yourself for Jesus. Jesus says anybody who loses his life for my sake does what? He actually finds it. Paul embraced this. However, Paul does go on to make it clear that I am an apostle. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not bashing titles. They do have importance. As the Bible says, honor those who are over you in the Lord. We want to be careful. We want to be balanced. Remember, we always want to be biblical here, right? We don't be too puffed up. We also don't want to disregard someone such as an apostle. And the reason why is because of the ministry that he's doing, because of the person that he's serving, who is Jesus Christ. That is why we respect the apostle Paul. We respect his writings. All right, let's keep going. Because now Paul says he is an apostle set apart for the gospel of God. Now, according to this verse, he is set apart, which means separated. Now, I love the way Francis Schaeffer talks about separation. He says separation usually has two actions, separation from something and separation to something. Separation from something and separation to something. He went on to say that separation from is easy to understand. Many things can keep us from God, and it is not possible to be separated to God unless we are separated from certain things. In other words, in order for me to be devoted to God, in order for me to be committed to God, God has to separate me from some things. He has to sometimes separate me from relationships. He has to sometimes separate me from my own ambition. Sometimes God has to separate me from my own understanding of self-righteousness. God has to separate me from things, and then when he separates me, he doesn't just leave me there. He doesn't just leave me neutral. He actually separates me to him so that now my life is devoted to him. Now my life can be committed to him. As Jesus said, you cannot serve two masters. You cannot be divided. You cannot be lukewarm. You're either going to be committed to one and you're going to despise the other. God has to separate us, sever us. And you guys know that sometimes it's hard being separated from those idols, being separated from those things that distract us. But Paul says that I was separated and I was separated to God, which means I'm devoted. I'm a slave. I'm committed. Everything that I do is for God and for God alone. And so we are coming to a letter written by a guy who was devoted to God. Now, the other thing I want you to notice is that Paul says, I was separated, 
But then he says this. He says, I was separated to the gospel of God, for the gospel of God. Now, this word gospel here is the first use of the word that will dominate this whole letter, the gospel. Everybody say the gospel. I want you to remember that it literally means, everybody say good news or good news proclaimed. Now, everybody know you can't, you can't improve good news, right? You can't live out good news. The only thing you can do with news is what? Proclaim it. You could just tell what's done. When you look on the news, they're just telling you what already happened. So the gospel is a historical thing that has happened. Now, pay attention to the preposition, though, of. Now, this, le- now, this little two-letter word tells us something very, very important. It tells us how to approach this letter. It tells us how to approach the gospel. We need to approach this letter in the pervasive, descriptive gospel given in it as a direct letter from God. This is a letter by God, not by the Apostle Paul. This is God's gospel. This is not Paul's gospel. Paul is writing on God's behalf. This, God said, I own this gospel. Why? Because we see that the gospel finds its origin in God. God is the originator of the gospel. This is exactly what this word of tells us, that the gospel was created by God. The gospel was started by God. And that is, and the gospel is about God, and the gospel is concerning God. The gospel in its totality is about Jesus Christ. This is God's good news. So what is the good news of God about? What is the goodness of this good news? It is Jesus. It's a person. The gospel is to be understood, but it is also to be known. And only God can reveal the gospel to you. How do I know when the gospel is revealed to me? Because I'll know Jesus. How do I know if I'm seeing the gospel? Because you will see Jesus Christ, for he is the gospel. The good news is not just words, church. I want to make sure I hammer this home. The good news is just not theological truths. The good news is dealing with a person, and he is the fullness of that goodness, Jesus Christ. So, Let's keep going to verse 2. It says, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Now, church, the good news is about Jesus. God had been talking about Jesus from the very first book in Genesis. So now Paul says in first, verse 2, this gospel, this good news of God has been promised beforehand through the prophets and the Holy Scriptures. Paul is now pointing to the Old Testament, and Paul is saying, before I arrived, before I showed up, this good news had already existed, and it was embedded in where? The Old Testament Scriptures. The first time we see the gospel of the good news is in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, and it says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. In this, we see that God initiates 
man's redemption. Now, here's what happens. Adam and Eve does what? They disobey God. They sow fig leaves. They go in the trees. They're hiding from God. You know what it is to hide from God when you did something wrong. We don't see you at church no more. We don't see you at, don't sit there and act funny about Adam and Eve. You know when you see it, you don't want to talk to nobody, especially nobody spiritual. I don't want to talk to the pastor. I don't want to talk to nobody. Uh, you put do not answer on your phone when you in sin. And when sin got you, it separates you. Adam and Eve had sin. They separated themselves from God. What you need to notice here is that Adam and Eve did not act first. God acted first. God came down to them. Adam, where are you? I'm hiding, Lord. I did some jacked up, messed up stuff, but that's okay because Adam, although you put yourself in a dilemma that you can't get yourself out of, I got some good news for you. Come here. Let me tell you that I got a son that is coming into the world to redeem and to fix what you messed up, what you jacked up. I'm going to put it together. The good news of Jesus Christ is that though we're messed up and we're in a dilemma and we can't pay for our sins. God makes a promise in the early parts of scripture and say that I'm going to fix this situation. I'm going to deal with this situation. I'm going to give the remedy to the, to, to the human problem, which is sin. And one of the things we must realize is that the human problem is not that we need higher education. It is not that we need more government. It is not that we need more laws. The human dilemma is a heart problem. And our hearts need to be changed. And there's only one person that can do spiritual heart surgery, and it's God. And we see here in Genesis that he promises the coming of Jesus Christ. All right, let's keep going. The gospel is concerning Jesus. Look at verse 3. I love this verse. Concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. I love this verse here. Did you catch the start of it, church? Verse 3. The gospel is concerning who? It's concerning Jesus Christ. One of the ways you can tell a false gospel from the real gospel is that false gospels are not about Jesus Christ. False gospels are about everything else. But here Paul says that the gospel is concerning God's son. So the gospel isn't following rules. It isn't about getting rich. It's not about a business plan. It isn't about a theology test, nor is it a way to keep on sinning. But the gospel is about Jesus Christ. Now I want you to underline that in your Bible, circle that in your Bible, highlight that in your Bible. The gospel is concerning his son. John Calvin said this, the whole gospel is contained in Christ. Therefore, to take one step from Christ is to withdraw oneself from the gospel. Salvation, friends, points us to a person. And if we see the gospel rightly, it says, run into the open arms of Jesus Christ in faith. The gospel sins are running to Jesus, not from Jesus. I think Paul presses this human thing even further as, he, as we continue to read. He said, who was a descendant from David according to the flesh. Now the Jews knew that the promised Messiah 
would come from the lineage of David, which is why when you read the gospel, they got all of these names, such and such, we got such and such, such and such, and we got such and such, because they're tracing the lineage of the Messiah. So don't skip over those no more, okay? Now, the flesh is really important, a really important word here. You see that word flesh? Now, Paul is going to use that word flesh in various ways as we travel through the book of Romans. Now, you have to understand, once again, context is important because when he uses the word flesh, he uses it in various ways. And sometimes flesh is used in a negative way, but here it is used in a positive way. When Paul talks about flesh, he's talking about the incarnation of Jesus, which we read at the beginning of the service. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And if you travel on down in the... In, in the Gospel of John, in verse 14, it says the word became flesh. We got a big fancy word we like to use around here, which we call the hypostatic union, which, which, which in other words is a shorthand way of saying that Jesus is 100% God and 100% man. Understand, church, if you take away the incarnation of Jesus, you have no gospel anymore. Jesus had to come in the flesh. And the reason why this is so important is because you got a lot of people saying a lot of things about who Jesus is. Some people say he's a good prophet. Some people say he was a cool dude back then. Some people say that he didn't die. Some people say he didn't come in the flesh. But Jesus is God in the flesh, and it is a necessity that he comes as God in the flesh in order to be our sacrifice, which we will learn as we continue to travel through the book of Romans. Here Paul is using it to describe Jesus' incarnation. His life was fully human, but what happened? Verse 4. And was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. What is this? Paul is talking about the exaltation of Christ. We can summarize Jesus' entire ministry as humiliation in the flesh. Let me pause there for a minute. If you think Jesus becoming human as a small thing, you don't understand. One person put it like this. It is like you downgrading to a worm. Or a fly. Better yet, let me give you something else because that went over your head. Or a mosquito. <laughs> Nobody likes a mosquito. Right? Would you downgrade to a mosquito? No, you will not. And, and that's just putting it nicely. When Jesus downgraded to a human, he downgraded, downgraded for real. That's humility for real. You see why Paul is not boasting about his apostleship? He's looking at Jesus, downgrade to a human. He said, what's an apostle? I'm just a slave to Christ Jesus. Now, there are two essential components to the gospel. Realize the gospel is not only about the person of Jesus Christ, but it is also about the work of Jesus Christ. There's two critical components to the gospel. Number one, his coming. Jesus had to become like us, as I said, but the second one, is that we must be reminded not only did he come, he actually rose again from the dead. Now, let me explain why rising from the dead is so critical and so important to your faith. If Jesus Christ did not rise from the dead, all of us might as well leave and go home. This is all a waste of time. If Jesus did not get up out of the grave, you might as well go home. Your faith is pointless. If you don't believe that he rose from the dead, there's no point of us worshiping him. I don't know about you. I don't want to worship a dead God. I need to worship the living God. Paul puts it like this in 1 Corinthians. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, Paul said, and if Christ has not been raised, 
Your faith is futile. I didn't say it. Paul said it. And you are still in your sin. Now, let me explain something really fast. The reason why Paul is so passionate about this, he says if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, see, it's one thing when you ain't suffered for Jesus. It's another thing when you've been hit with rocks and you've been, and, and, and you've been out in the cold and you've been naked and you say, if this dude ain't real, I didn't waste it my time. But when Christianity has been comfortable for you, when it's been convenient for you, when Jesus ain't been there, when you were crying on your pillow at night, it doesn't really matter whether he rose from the dead or not. But when you gave your life, Life to this thing. He has got to be risen from the dead because if he's not risen from the dead, I might as well stop preaching. You might as well close your Bible. You might as well get up, eat, live, and be merry and do what you're going to do. But here's the good news that Jesus got up on the third day and he's seated at the right hand of the Father so I can live and I can walk and I can talk like I serve a living God. That's why the old people could be in the kitchen talking to him. That's why old folks used to walk with him that's why sometimes you'll catch us on a Wednesday night praying to him. That's why sometimes you'll catch me crying to him. That's why sometimes in my marriage, I'm asking Jesus to intercede. That's why sometimes when I'm struggling with sin, I'm praying to him because he got up. And if he got up, I can get up. I don't know about you. I didn't mean to go Easter, but since I got the outfit on, might as well do it. Jesus got up so we can get up, church. That's our celebration. That's why we sing. So not only only did he come and not only did he get up from the dead but we're missing the middle part which is a critical part you got the coming of the messiah but you got the cross dead smack down in the middle on the other side is the resurrection now i don't want to leave the cross out because if i left the cross out that wouldn't be a whole gospel so you got to understand when he came he came with a purpose his purpose was is that he had to die for our sin we call that substitutionary atonement. In other words, he was a substitute for me. I don't care how cute you are. I don't care the status of your job. I don't care what you think you are. At the end of the day, we needed a savior that can die, that died for us. Now, many of us may try to be cute in this place and act like we got it all together, but I tell people straight up like this, if God had to die for you, you're not as cute as you think you are. You're not as nice as you think you are. When God has to die for you, he outed in front of everybody in this joint, everybody jacked up, everybody messed up, and if you don't get that, then there's only one place left for you. Hell, yeah, we still preach that here. Yes, sir. Eternal separation from God. And all, so, so Paul says, we see this in the Old Testament. I don't have time to get into all of this. But as you look at the Levitical laws and you look at Exodus and you look at Jeremiah and, 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 and as you look at Ezekiel and so forth and so forth, all of them are painting the picture of the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ coming into the world to take away our sins. And Paul is writing to the church of Rome and say, I believe that right there. Because later on, we're going to see they say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Now, a lot of other people may be ashamed of it, but I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God. Paul, now pay attention to this. Because he says, was declared to be the son of God by his resurrection. Now, I thought that Jesus was always the son of God. Paul is explaining something that is often missed in our Christology. How by virtue of his obedience to the cross and his resurrection, 
God the Father bestowed a new authority and power on Jesus that he didn't have before. Before he was the Son of God in the flesh, the Son of God in weakness, the Son of God in bleeding, the Son of God in struggling on a Roman cross. All of these weakness qualified Jesus to be our substitute, our sacrifice on the cross. And now our faithful high priest acquainted with our own human weakness. I want you to be reminded that Jesus knows what it is to suffer. Now, how is our Lord further good news for us? That he is Lord, but he is the Son of God in weakness no more. He was the Son of God in weakness. Now he is the Son of God in power. Power. All power is in his hands. This is why Augustine could go up to a verse in Romans. And the power of sin be broken. There's nothing outside of his jurisdiction. There's nothing over him. He is above all. Jesus reigns, church. No, he really, really, really reigns. No, he's really at the right hand of the Father. Like, 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 really, like for real, for real. When we sing, we're not singing to our imaginations. We're singing to a person. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That's what he told his disciples. All authority on heaven and earth has been given unto me. I rule it all. I'm sovereign. <laughs> There's nothing over me. There's nothing that I can't do. You got a problem? I can fix that. I'm God, church. When you come to this book, you will not come to me as if I am a science project to be studied. You will come and worship me. You will bow down before me because I am king of kings and lord of lords. Which leads us to how Paul refers to Jesus at the end of verse 4, and he repeats it essentially at the end of verse 7. Watch this. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Our Lord, why is this critical? Who is he writing to? Rome. Who is Lord in Rome? Caesar. The worship of Caesar was required in Rome. This was no problem for your average Roman because they believe in several gods. And adding Caesar to it wasn't a problem for them. Who was Caesar when Paul wrote the Roman, uh, to, to the Roman Christians, Nero. <laughs> if you ever get a chance, read up on Nero. My man was a psycho. He was crazy. You hear me? Something was wrong with him. Nero was a madman. Nero claimed he was equal to God. When you think you're equal to God and you see your body fading away, you know something wrong with you. Nero hated Christians. He hated them. In just seven years' time, these same Roman Christians would be impaled on poles and lit on fire. <laughs> y'all got to read y'all Christian history. Your brothers and sisters were made as candles to burn at parties. We're not playing games, church. We're comfortable in America. But persecution is coming. It's persecution like this, and you better know the gospel that he got up out of that grave, or you're not going to last. You'll be too scared of death. Paul himself will be beheaded by Nero, 
Paul would be beheaded by him. He would um, execute Paul. And many of the disciples who followed Jesus were actually martyrs. They were actually executed quiet as it kept, which is why I'm so furious about the health, wealth, prosperity gospel, the gospel that tells you that there's no pain and there's no suffering. And when I look back on the history of my brothers and sisters and people dying and being slain in the sand, and you mean to tell me Christianity is about a BMW? Get out of here, man. You mean to tell me Christianity is about me getting rich? That's not the gospel. The gospel is about Jesus Christ and people who lay down their life when they get that. Why is it good news that Jesus is Lord? If you have ever been under any kind of bad and oppressive leadership, you desire to be set free from it. Now, all of us in the room have been under the dominion of sin prior to our salvation, and sin was ruined in our lives. The good news in the gospel is no matter who we are under, they are under our Lord the one who came and died for us, the one who will wipe away every tear from our eye, the highest throne, and his name is Jesus. He is the Christ of God, son of David, son of God, eternal savior of all who believe in him. His name is Jesus, and that is good news, friends. Jesus has finished his work. Church, Jesus is for everybody. There is no other gospel for humanity. There is no other good news. I like the way Peter puts it. There's no other name under heaven by which we can be what? Saved. Paul writes essentially a sermon to the Romans of the gospel and addresses three historical attitudes that are even present in this room today. So as we go through the book of Romans, Paul is actually arguing against three mindsets. The first attitude is this. The Jewish attitude. They believed that salvation was through the law, that they could obtain righteousness through keeping the Ten Commandments. But the bad news about it's not good news, it's bad news. Because the reality is no one in here can obtain salvation through being a good boy and a good girl. There is no righteousness in the law for you. When you break the law, you got to pay for that. You got charges piling up against you. You got to pay for that. And the Bible says the wages of sin is death. So there is no righteousness through the law. Now understand, in order, now this is very critical and relevant because all of us are going to die in this place one day. In order for you to get into heaven, in order for you to be at peace with God, you have got to be in relationship with Christ. Now, Hold on. Now, you cannot obtain that through doing good works. Okay? I want to make sure we all got that. None of us go to heaven because we came to church. None of us go to heaven because we didn't cuss this week. None of us go to heaven because we stopped fornicating. None of us go to heaven because of any of that. All of those are byproducts of salvation, which I'll get to that later on. But none of us go to heaven because of good works. Number two, the second thing that Paul was going up against was the Greeks. Now, the Greeks believed that you can obtain righteousness through intelligence. You can think your way out of it. You get enough theology, you can get right with God. That's not good news. That's bad news. You can't think yourself out of your sin. That's why Paul writes in Corinthians, in, 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 in 1 Corinthians, the, the, the cross is foolishness to the Greeks. But God made simple the wise, right, by giving us Christ. 
So that doesn't work. And so Paul is writing to the, 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 the Romans to help them understand that there is only one true gospel. So number one was, was the uh, Jews. Number two was the Greeks. And the third one was the Roman attitude that said, I could be right by God by pulling myself up by my bootstraps and working hard. Some of us think if we work hard enough, oh, I could just beat this sin. I can overcome it. I can do this. Stop. No, don't do that anymore, Dexter. Paul says, you do that, you're still a slave. Because you don't have enough strength and enough power in you to overcome sin. Every time you think that you're getting right with God, you're not. It's bad news. But Paul said, those are all bad news, and this is why. Every last one of those lead to one place, hell. But there is one good news, and it leads to heaven, and there's only one way to get that. It is through Jesus Christ. No one gets to the Father except through who? Through me. We live in a society that tells you that there's all kind of ways to God. You're not getting there without Jesus Christ. You must go through me. I am the doorway. That is good news because Jesus is a proclamation that we can be made right with God. We can be at peace with God. We can be reconciled through God. And that only comes through Jesus Christ. Now, what do we do with such good news? What do we do when we hear good news? When you got something good, you go tell everybody. You go shout, right? You get a new boyfriend, everybody on Facebook knows. You get a new job, everybody knows. You get a raise, everybody knows. When I get good news, I go tell everybody, hey, man, you ain't going to believe this. You know, you ain't going to believe this. Some of y'all, y'all get a million likes on Facebook, and everybody knows. When we have good news, we don't just keep it to ourselves. We go proclaim it to everybody. And this is good news that God came into the world. He sent his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. But he rose again from the dead on the third day, and that he's coming again from for all those who believe in him. If I was you, I would give God a crazy praise for the good news of Jesus Christ. Mike is coming back at this time. Verse 5, this is what Paul says, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of the faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God, and called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. For the sake of his name, to be proclaimed among the nations, Jews, Greeks, Romans, Gentiles, black, white, Hispanic, no matter where you are, among all the nations for the sake of his name, we proclaim the gospel of God, which is Jesus Christ, our Lord.